Hello and welcome to People's History of Violence, the podcast where we go do deep dives in histories, assassinations, affairs, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. I'm your co-host, Isaac. And I'm your co-host, Peter. And today, we're really continuing to keep our finger on the pulse of what everyone, all the cool kids on all the cool websites are talking about. They're, they were begging us for this episode. Yeah, we kept, we, we, we finally heard you. So we're going to talk about the death of Zachary Taylor. Third... Twelfth president of the United States? Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think it was thirteen. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, apologies for uh, for my uh, extra nasally uh, voice this time. I'm wrestling with whatever respiratory illness that's not COVID that everyone seems to have right now. It's the cool thing to have. I am feeling, you know, like very, uh, you know, as, as you pointed out, Peter. I'm feeling very noir detective. Mm, yeah. Uh, right now, I've got uh, this this giant full scale Maltese Falcon replica mm-hmm. sitting here in my little station. Which you know, if this was a movie, that would totally be like the Chekhov's gun that mm-hmm. eventually used to murder me. Oh, absolutely! And I'm uh, in an unheated garret now. That's right. With unheated no cold water flat. Yeah, thanks to these people in my building who decided to not repair the boiler. Yeah. All right. So I'm I'm in well, I'm in full I'm in full historical detective mindset, is I, I guess what I'm gonna say. Yeah. So this is an interesting death mm. for some reason. Now, Zachary Taylor is an antebellum president, mm. of course, also a general. We'll go through his biography, but uh, today for this uh episode, uh we're gonna go back in time, uh talking about the sudden and strange death of this president 10 years before Lincoln took office, 10 years before the start of the Civil War, a full decade, but things were heating up already. Mm. Um, president took office and a president who took office and died in office during what we can say in retrospect was an escalating, knockdown, drag out, fight to the death, class war, mm. cataclysmic clash of systems, the United States, between an alliance of free labor, quote-unquote, we're talking about capitalist wage labor here, and industrial northern capitalists, and also like kind of northwestern heartland country type, Mm -hmm. and of course the southern slaveocracy. But in this class war, however, uh, Taylor presents kind of a contradictory and enigmatic figure. He's not Mm -hmm. simply like a uh, kind of representative of a rising self-made man archetype the way Lincoln is, Mm -hmm. um, but a strange like sinks of a president who was a large slaveholder who in the evil laws of the time at his death bequeathed a whopping 131 flesh and blood people but who nevertheless opposed the extension of slavery. He was mm. actually supported by anti-slavery or at least anti-extensionist congressmen and politicians in running mm. for president and uh, was even on good terms with more outright abolitionists like the, Adam, uh, the Adams family, mm. um, yeah. the John Quincy Adams mm. and descendants family. He was a bloody military man who all his life led armies in carrying out wars of rank conquest mm. and displacement that formed the American historical tableau of the early 19th century uh, against Native American tribes and Mexico, who nonetheless opposed the annexation of Texas and, as uh, historian Matt Carp describes him, was probably the most anti-slavery president of the antebellum period. Yeah, I think for a lot of us, it's not just the fairly simple-minded 
application of contemporary morality that makes this tricky, wherein, you know, obviously anyone who owns slaves, if anybody owned slaves today, we would think that person was very bad uh, or, yeah. or thought that slavery was good. Uh, and that's as it should be. And I don't think we should abandon that idea when we look at the past. As uh, Isaac said, the laws of that time were evil. It was a you know, evil thing to be able to do to literally own human beings and pass them on to one's descendants. That being said, it isn't always a helpful guide to understanding the politics of other times and other places. So it's not out of moral relativism, I would say, that we need to broaden our ideas of what was possible politically at the time in terms of beliefs that people could hold simultaneously or beliefs and actions that one person could both believe and do that don't seem to make sense to us, but is useful from a sense-making you know, historical capacity. It's also worth noting that, you know, as, as Isaac says, this was 10 years before the outbreak of the, of the U.S. Civil War, and things did roughly by that time, by the time the Civil War break, broke out, things looked a little more like what we would, uh, an ideological universe we would recognize. Yeah. Um, the sides became somewhat clear, not anywhere near as clear as we would like it to be necessarily in our own sort of concepts of these things. But by then you had relatively clear pro-slavery, anti-slavery sides. But for the run of American history before then, it actually wasn't terribly uncommon for people to own slaves, support a certain degree of expansion, but also think, okay, well, maybe eventually slavery is going to go away, or we shouldn't extend it, or we should annex this part of the world, but not that other part, right? There's this assumption that either you're an abolitionist or a kind of shallow abolitionist, you know, depending on who you're talking to, they might see Abraham Lincoln that way or whoever, kind of an opportunist, or you're a raving slavery maniac where you want all of the slaves everywhere all the time. You want to take over certainly the Americas, if not the world, for your evil slave empire. And obviously there were people like that. But powerful factions at the powerful point. factions. I mean, it's it's this universe or this historical moment of shifting alliances, much yes. of which are cemented by just like cash, yes, giving away of offices, right. the prospect of being able to win people this being or that related state. to each other, people being able to be marry to, to each other, other. married to each other. Although in sometimes going against those same, yes, family, same family ties, particularly in Taylor's case, right? It's so so. I guess to to finish up this you know rant I've been going on. What we're talking about here has, uh, obviously, there's moral implications to all of it, but it's worth bearing that dimension in mind with the political dimension. And the political dimension here is the management of a growing empire and different strategies for managing this strange, growing, somewhat Republican, somewhat imperial system that the Americans were kind of throwing together at this point. Yeah, and the explosions and uh, and none of it's meant to say that none of it's meant to like like Isaac said earlier is meant to imply that uh, Zachary Taylor was like you know a good guy. Yeah, we'll 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 do away with any myths about that because there were a bunch of historians who have a very gauzy view. But mm. into this kind of explosive system conflict, expanding empire, historical moment, our episode concerns how the old general. Uh, despite being in apparently good health on July 4th of 1859, merely hours later would begin a nearly five-day bout of vomiting, 
extreme thirst and bloody diarrhea. Diagnosed at the time with the catch-all stomach problem diagnosis of cholera morbus. Mm. There were immediate rumors, however, and speculation that Taylor had been poisoned by agents of the slaving interests, or as they mm. would say at the time, the slave power. Yes. So this got mythologized, however, this the, the cholera morbus explanation got mythologized with the notion that Taylor died from eating a bowl full of cherries and ice milk. Mm-hmm. Which That's what I was taught. Yeah, he died from a tummy ache. Mm. I was taught that. Yep. My uh, my old man is otherwise like very skeptical guy, uh, mm. but mildly uh, also told me that. Um, but almost immediately after Taylor's death, in the form of letters to new President Miller Fillmore, uh, people would stated their fear, particularly Northeasterners, mm. that Taylor had been poisoned. And uh, this was kind of followed through um, and given a new life in 1991 when relatives of Taylor and the novelist and historian Clara Rising, and note that I don't say good novelist, mm-hmm. <laughs> Clara Rising, and later in the 1990s, Michael Prenny would raise more concerns and uh, Prenny would raise them with a, a better basis and evidence and uh, writing style. So Rising, that novelist, however, got Taylor's hair and fingernails tested in nuclear reactors, and we'll go into the mm. cool shit about that, with some pretty interesting results that we'll talk about in a bit. But the mainstream media, newspapers, NBC News, and so on, ran with the particular finding from the Kentucky State Medical Examiner's Office, which is that the testing appeared to show no fatal dose of arsenic. So mm-hmm. in their eyes, it's poisoning closed. out. No, no slave power agents poisoning Zachary Taylor. Um, which goes back to, was it a bowl full of cherries? No, the smarter modern version of the disease theory that he died of some kind of natural disease, I thought was articulated pretty well uh, by Matt Crispin and Chris Wade's podcast, Hell of Presidents, uh, namely that Taylor and other presidents at the time, James K. Polk, mm-hmm. just before Taylor. Yeah, Taylor was the 12th president. Yeah. I looked this up. Polk was the 11th. So we got uh, James K. Polk, who dies shortly after office, mm-hmm. Zachary Taylor, William Henry Harrison, and uh, honestly, Willie Lincoln, um, mm. one of Lincoln's kids, uh, all appear to have died of stomach ailments that likely came from the fact that the night soil depository, or mm. the shit house, really, yeah. uphill from the spring that the White House's pipe water supply was on, may have contaminated it. Yeah. As they call it the lake of shit theory. Mm. So poison or poop. Poison or poop? No, I should say that the 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 lake of shit theory in some of its variations was advanced in the years after Taylor's death as well, mm-hmm. and examined by historians in the 70s. Mm. But one major problem is that the two big shit-born ailments, mm-hmm. typhoid and cholera, mm. um no one else drinking from the same water and eating the same food at the White House, which is a big household yeah. at the time, seems to have gotten these. Right. Anyway, it, it seems, that, you know, I will say this, it seems with some of these cases, like uh, especially with Willie Lincoln, whose brother also got it, mm-hmm. got the same disease at the same time and was exhibiting all the symptoms thereof. There seems to be have been some of that going around in this right. swamp heap that yeah. was Washington, D.C. at the time. But there's no big outbreak of cholera or anything else. This seems to be something that only Zachary Taylor got. Right, yeah. It, it doesn't seem like it would make that much sense for just one person to get it, that it would spread around if they're all drinking the same water. Yeah, and even in 1991, when the medical examiner released their findings that 
they didn't or they couldn't find any evidence of poisoning or mm -hmm. they didn't think it was poisoning they also said these symptoms aren't actually like consistent with cholera or typhoid yeah. these symptoms that zachary taylor is described as having so we can't claim this is an assassination or a crime as such although we will go in depth into the very interesting evidence which frankly has been mostly suppressed mm. but if this was like an unsolved mysteries death episode this would go under unexplained death yes yeah so the stakes here are interesting, though, because as Michael Perenni pointed out in his book, History is Mystery, this is a death that's about whether Americans see their country as, especially in its early heroic formative years, <laughs> blood-soaked oh, beginnings. I don't know how you yeah. want to look at it. <laughs> yeah. When men were men. Yeah. Whether they want to see their country as one where events including big history moving events could be moved by a conspiratorial actions in the service of class interest that doesn't mean that like a conspiracy rules but more like mm. like a conspiracy of violence could happen as kind of like a sortie from right like, from the lines of a class army yes that's are we do we answer to many of the same dynamics that other countries do that's one thing that some of the newer study of things like the u.s civil war and also you know shout outs to you know radio warner their examination of the civil war over right. the last year or so has shown that things are a lot closer to in early american history to what we associate with say the nascent latin american republics than yes. than the model of American statehood we've inherited from the post-Civil War and especially the post-World War II period, right? Co potential coups, these weird cat, these weird politics of class and caste, incestuous elites often looking out for their own regional interest over the national interest, all that stuff. We, we act, very different conceptions of what they want the national interest exactly, to be. Exactly, yes. Yeah. We act like that stuff. <laughs> is oh that's those poor latin americans or or post post decolonization oh you know africans and asians or what have you but that was us too it just happened that we got luckier yeah and i mean so kind of what a lot of this, case this is like historians are completely willing to accept that poisonings and murder conspiracies mm. and hired killers are mm -hmm. a, a part of the politics of say ancient rome yes or ancient greece renaissance uh, italy or yeah in renaissance italy especially especially <laughs> if we're talking about poison yeah but not so much the united states so taylor presents an interesting case but obviously we'll we'll need to answer the threshold question of uh poison or poop yeah but first i thought we could start out by talking about who taylor was mm. as a as a warlord because uh reading through these biographies and and got uh, so so Clara Risen's uh, book, and I don't recommend reading the Taylor file. Though we'll extract some quotes from it. She presents Taylor as basically how Taylor wanted to present himself in his presidential campaign, mm. which is entirely above politics, like a a Cincinnatus like mm. figure who you know came from his from rusticating the countryside to stand above people who wanted to contain and kill slavery, like the Scorpion Sting as uh, James Oakes talks about, and uh, pro-slavery fanatics. And he would, it, it, if only he hadn't died, he would have been an Eisenhower-like figure. Yeah, I was just going to say, this sounds a lot like the reputation Eisenhower. And that's that's how he gets talked about by a lot of hagiographic mm -hmm. historians. But uh, what I see in the Taylor research is that he's a lot more like one of the more politically savvy and, mm -hmm. uh, and avaricious mm -hmm. Roman generals mm -hmm. that 
were actually used to from history, like mm-hmm. uh, like Marius, right, Sulla, yeah, uh, Caesar. Depending on if you're going on the popular or anti-popular mm-hmm. side, right. So in Taylor's military career, you can actually see a lot of U.S. expansion in not in a in a kind of like abstract way, but mm-hmm. how it really happened, which was just rem- remorseless efforts by private settlers to swindle and kill their way mm-hmm. across the continent to get land, particularly if they had debts or were mm-hmm. running out of uh, options in the city yeah. and didn't want to become eventually like proletarianized right, workers. Yes. So Taylor was actually born to a plantation family or at least an established farm family mm-hmm. with some slaves already in the household in the late 1700s. He married in 1810, age 24, to an established Baltimore woman and decamped in his first commission, because this will become like his whole mission in life, taking up these military campaigns. Mm -hmm. Uh, He decamps to Baton Rouge on a commission to run a fort there, and later went through camps and forts in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Kansas, Louisiana, which I already named, I guess, Arkansas, Florida, and perhaps most importantly of all, Texas. So notably at times, he used force sometimes to actually repress white settler incursions. But modus operandi, what he was usually commissioned for was as a quote unquote Indian fighter. Yes. And apologies for using that term. That's just the quoted one in Mm -hmm. the the campaign literature. And that involved uh, semi-genocidal and in certain cases like the Second Civil War, like practically genocidal wars on Native American populations to go ahead and seize that land, Mm -hmm. often for not, you know, freestanding Yeoman agriculture, Mm -hmm. but for expanding plantation agriculture. So first off, his first big engagement is in the Black Hawk War of 1832, in which a pretty small U.S. force, Mm -hmm. um, by later standards, would fight a combined alliance of many Native American tribes that called themselves, I believe, the British Band. Mm. Connecting this later, though, Young Abraham Lincoln was briefly involved as a militiaman commissioned in the Black Hawk War, but actually would see no combat. This was in, and this was in kind of the upper Midwest. Yes. Sort of Illinois. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Taylor really starts going, though, with the Second Seminole War, which he served in from 1838 to 1840. Now, this was where the U.S. Army was essentially hunting down and engaged in pretty bloody combat on where this the, the Seminole Indians, as they were called then, the Seminole tribe who had lived in Florida for some time after decamping from, a lot of them decamped from areas of Georgia, mm-hmm. and some of them had been living in Florida for some time, and many have been living in Florida for many generations under mm-hmm. Spanish rule. Mm-hmm. And included in their kind of wider communities, sometimes dual villages and not, uh, escaped slaves yeah. and escaped enslaved people. And obviously this was seen by the plantation owning and uh, would-be plantation owning mm. settlers there as a major threat. Mm-hmm. If if some of your enslaved persons can run to a camp of, of people who are armed and able to defend themselves makes it more likely that you're not going to have a plantation for very long. Right. And so raids on these, as they were originally called by the Spanish Cimarron yes. communities, and then later they think became kind of like bastardized into Seminole, oh, yeah. became a real source of focus for the growing U.S. imperial state. Mm. Yeah, because you saw these all over the slave parts of the Atlantic, these mar- what were called in some places maroons, right? these independent escape slave communities 
And they were there. There was a lot of politics around that. Mostly, you know, the white powers trying to exterminate them. So, though in some cases, the the powers that be would make alliances with them. But this would have been around the context of the revolution in Haiti and uh, the Morant Bay rebellion in Jamaica, which had some relationship with the maroon communities there. So, and in particular, you know, this is this is post the uh, British emancipation. Yes in the Caribbean. Right, so. because they reacted to the things like the Moran Bay Rebellion by somewhat fast-tracking abolition, but also making sure that the Black people in the Caribbean weren't entirely free. They were typically put into apprenticeship programs and that kind of thing. So, yeah, the slave power in the U.S. was worried. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I would say that uh, Taylor in this in this particular war was the tip of their the spear. The mm. Seminoles were ordered to move west of the Mississippi, to which they said no, um, mm. understandably. And then the army was sent in. Uh, there were a wide variety of battles, which we won't talk about, but this was another quote-unquote successful war by the United States. More to, to our point about later poisoner poop, mm. one thing you got to point out with this war and all of the wars of the time is way more casualties were due to disease yes. and people shitting themselves yes. than with bullets, arrows, or spears. Historically, this is often true in a lot of wars, but it seemed pretty dramatic in cases like the Seminole War. Yeah, because, I mean, Florida, this before is, air conditioning, is a hellish, yeah. hellish place. Uh, and before anyone could drain any of the mosquito swamps away. and yeah, Yeah, so there were about 1,400 fatalities in the regular army alone. Mm -hmm. And to put that in context, that's out of a force of 9,000 people. Mm. So 12.6% mm. of every regular army troop, and this isn't just privates, corporals, whatever, this is all of them, mm -hmm. died mm. of usually dysentery or yellow right, fever yeah. in this war. So. You have to think that if Taylor is surviving these swamp conditions, mm -hmm. he's pretty hardy. Right, he's robust. He's a robust guy. And uh, I mean, there's also, you know, some people are just more easily exposed to tropical mm -hmm. diseases than others. Taylor, at least in this war and the following one, does not appear to be one of them. Mm -hmm. Taylor's big superstar moment, though, mm -hmm. was with the Mexican War under James K. Polk. Now, in this war, he was, again, the tip of the spear as he was ordered by Polk to lead forces into the Noasis uh, area. Mm -hmm. And that became the point of engagement where either the supposedly, as the American newspapers at the time would say, the Mexican forces uh, attempted to push back these expansionist Americans who were decided to take on and annex Texas, or whether Taylor just ordered his own troops mm -hmm. to attack the Mexicans. Yeah. Uh, we don't know, but we, but it was suspected that by people at the time, like Abraham Lincoln, that the Americans just went in to start the war yeah. and continue their obvious prov provocative incursions until mm -hmm. they would be able to wage a war on Mexico to expand. And this is important here with each of these wars to expand the territory for slavery. Yes. Uh, in the lands where slavery was allowed. Mexico, of course, at the time prohibited slavery. Mm-hmm. Which is the reason why the Texans broke away. Definitely one of them. They'll say it's not the primary one. Uh -huh. I think it's the primary one. Yeah. So in the Mexican War, to fast forward a little bit, Taylor becomes the hero of Buena Vista, probably the biggest, bloodiest battle. 
of the war in which he slipped somewhat outnumbered routes the forces of Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, mm -hmm. who became the leader of Mexico in the middle of the war. Your disease question again, though, 10,986 U.S. soldiers mm. died of disease in the Mexican War. That's 16% of the entire force. Mm. And this isn't just got sick. Yeah. We the, must think that a much larger number got sick. Yeah. This is the ones that died. Jeez. So in both of these, more than one in 10 people yeah. die. You would think it's really rolling the dice. I mean, that's what, that's what the word decimate means, is when you lose one in 10 of your force. Yeah. And they're over decimated they're they're extra decimated <laughs>